Well, welcome to the second episode of Ideas and Lives. It's a podcast and YouTube channel, uh, conversations with people who have in compelling ideas and interesting lives. Uh, and I'm Bob Lerman, co-host, social policy economist with... Sadi Bodhi, Bob's friend and co-host. And financial economist. Uh, you can find us on uh, anchor.fm uh, and the YouTube channel Ideas and Lives. Uh, today is Tuesday, March 30th. And our guest is academic and business entrepreneur Leonard Hausman. We call him Lenny. Uh, he's an old friend of the two of us, and we're delighted to have you today, Lenny, and welcome. Good, thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here with the two of you, longtime friends and colleagues, uh, and people from whom I've learned a lot to be serious. Okay, but- And uh, it should be said, for the record, that Lenny and I both went to Brooklyn Technical High School at the same time. Wow. wow. But we didn't know each other back then. We didn't know each other, right. Well, we'll come to the life story uh, a bit later. Okay. But I want to start out uh, with some ideas mm -hmm. relating to um, Lenny, your view of what's going on in the two areas that you seem to have uh, uh, gotten into quite a bit. Uh, one is the Middle East and the other is China. Right. So let's start with your uh, view. We've got uh, a lot of uh, contentious discussion and debate about what the U.S. should do about China. Probably there's some Chinese debate as well. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on that relationship and how it's evolved? Wait, let, let me just give a, a tiny introduction in that Lenny is... Uh, not just a thought leader, he's also a man of action. So he's been involved in trying to bring together the warring parties in the Middle East for many, many years. That's correct. <clears throat> and I think it's fair to say without being uh, uh, modest that um, I've been able to do my work because I've been able to work with really outstanding people uh, in the Boston area at four universities, maybe five. And um, what I've been able to do, and I didn't anticipate this, I didn't look to do it, uh, was find colleagues who had very interesting ideas, some of which I thought merited development, okay? Um, I think that my originality, if there's any, comes from taking the ideas of others and figuring out how best to implement them, okay? So I think that my track record on China, on the Middle East, um, and maybe on some things domestic, like working on employee benefits, uh, really has, uh, have come from uh, superb colleagues. I'm not kidding, okay? And I'll illustrate that. So um, uh, 
My wife would say, my wife Bonnie would say that um, uh, I have a need to uh, be a little bit of a contrarian, okay? Uh, I hope out of uh, some objectivity uh, and without being a contrarian, I can say an answer to your uh, kind of opening question and statement, Bob, that um, the administrations of President Biden and President Trump on foreign and economic policy with respect to China and the Middle East, as far as I can see them today in the Biden administration, are more similar than dissimilar, okay? And probably neither Trump people nor Biden people would like to hear that, okay? Um, and be very difficult to articulate publicly but I'll just make a couple of points and try not to ramble on too long. Um, yesterday there was, on China, yesterday there was a front page story on, uh, in the Wall Street Journal <clears throat> on a woman, uh, Catherine Tai, her Chinese American name. And she's the chief trade negotiator now for the Biden administration, the US government, dealing with China and other parties. And the basic point of the interview with her was that she's not going to surrender any strength in negotiations that were established before her in the Trump years. So she didn't articulate whether the Biden administration is for free trade, like maybe the three of us would be by background or against free trade, but she said, I'm not going to surrender tariffs that are in place, except in the context of a mutually beneficial exchange between China and the United States. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting because it kind of laid down the marker. We're Trump, except we're open, but Trump said he was open too, and did make a deal in the last year of his uh, term in office with China. Uh, however, uh, Lenny, let's let's stick to China for a moment. Okay, and let's get get your perspective on. Do you think people are missing something? China is uh, <clears throat> this big bear that uh, we're. I, I just read um, that uh, Americans are relatively open to free trade, except with China. Um, can you kind of give also a little bit of your thinking on the Chinese perspective? Well, I, I What's think, been happening? I think Lenny can say a little bit about what he has tried to do to accomplish in China. Yeah. The last in the answer. I think it's very hard to read China on trade, okay? Uh, when the three of us grew up educationally, we learned about market economies and uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, non-market uh, economies, socialist economies, whatever you want to call them. Uh, today, there's something new called China. And when I interact with Chinese, um, I'm interacting a lot with Chinese in the private sector, motivated like any American business people are motivated. They want to make a lot of money in their private business. They do know that the government, the party and the government hover around them, okay? So it's an autocratic and uh, it's a government that openly meddles in the economy, okay? But at the same time, a lot of big private businesses are developing, 
with government support, without government support. So what kind of economy is that? Okay, and how different is that uh, from what exists in the United States, not to just kind of brush over things. Now, C has asked me to add to that what I've done. Um, when I started getting involved in working, let's say, in the Chinese economy, it was uh, December 1982, okay? And then in summers following that, about five or six times, and Bob was there on one of those trips to China. And see, at that time, the essence of what we were doing at the request of the then Ministry of Labor and Personnel, as it was called, was to develop a uh, social protection system for them that fit with a market economy, okay? And basically, to give you one illustration, um, I, I don't remember what Bob taught about, uh, but the thing that I developed was a work on unemployment insurance. And I took the work of Robert Hall, who you guys uh, would know of and would know, and Martin Feldstein. And they didn't tell me about the context uh, fully in detail in which we were working. And then one time after doing this for some time, uh, the key guy at the Ministry of Labor and Personnel asked me to go out for lunch with him. And uh, my, uh, my colleague, who was fluent in both languages, Chinese and English, and he said, uh, we want you to know that your ideas on unemployment insurance are now one of the two alternatives that we're considering for our first nationwide unemployment insurance law. This was the summer of 1986, three, okay? Wow. Yeah. Were you a professor at, at Brandeis at the yes, time? Yes, I, I was at Brandeis, but my programs, as Bob would know, combined faculty from the best universities in Boston, from some of the biggest companies at that time in the US, like IBM and Chemical Bank, if you would remember that, and see you would, okay, given your work, and the US government, the Social Security Administration, okay? Um, and um, it was interesting that one group congealed, it was kind of my ideas as I taught them, but they were basically the uh, result of the empirical work that Hall and Feldstein had done on unemployment insurance, its impact on the duration of unemployment and so on and so forth. You would know about that kind of thing in general, okay? And there we were, Feldstein and Hall are not exactly, we're not exactly left-wing economists. And there we were in Beijing and the key guy organizing all that is saying to me, in effect, he didn't realize it, the Feldstein Hall ideas on how to design optimally unemployment insurance for the country called China are one of the two options on the table for the whole government, the whole party, the whole government for all of China, okay? It, did they adopt any aspects of it? Yes, they adopted a compromise. They were basically debating the key kind of variable at the time, or the key, key parameter was um, the duration of unemployment insurance. Should it be uh, 16, 24, or 52, something like that. And they fought it out internally, verbally, and they decided to make it some kind of a mix on that parameter and others, okay? So what I saw then, uh, in, in, in other situations, but that really illustrates it because you asked me about what I did, was that they were really trying to develop a functioning market economy 
with social protection that supported a private economy that didn't undermine it, okay? And um, I'm not sure how different that is today. And one of the things that we have to worry about is that our media uh, tend to form, you know, kind of like a current think. And the current think for Democrats and Republicans alike is that there's a controlled economy like there is a controlled polity, okay? And it's a communist economy um, and so on and so forth. And I'm not sure that, you know, when I interact, for example, I had a phone call, a Zoom meeting today, okay? Uh, with a woman who's connected at the highest levels in China and my Korean American colleague, my partner. And she's saying to us that a private for profit, fully not connected to the government, investment fund, see, wants to go into different areas of healthcare. They want to finance healthcare training from the premier Harvard affiliated hospitals, but then they want to do other things as well. Okay. And China or China, China with American institutions, right. And uh, when my colleague asked her, you know, what's driving them, uh, she said to him, ZW, money, okay? They want to maximize profit on the funds that they have in that fund, and they think that the health sector and this particular kind of thing in the health sector is the way to go. And he asked again and again, and it was always the same thing, money, ZW. Whose money is it? Who's it, who does it belong to? Oh, I don't know the source of the funds, but it seemed like, I don't know where they got the funds, but they didn't mention government as an investor in the fund. Sometimes it is a government fund or government funds, but it seemed that this was independent. I don't know. Okay. And this is among us, your podcast. Well, what was her, what was the official's point? <clears throat> what the was she person trying? connected. Uh, her point was, um, uh, maybe government policy is guiding them and they'll take advantage of it, okay? In particular, they're thinking that uh, most of the hospitals in China still are publicly owned and operated, okay? Um, uh, and uh, their needs as understood by this investment fund are driving the investment fund as to where they may make the most profit, okay? But they're independent and they're making a judgment. And just like here, you know, John Kerry and so on, they uh, formulate environmental policy and that might have an impact on Tesla's thinking or whatever, okay. Uh, they're out to make money given the whole environment that they see. So- How do you think they, <coughs> how do you think, <coughs> excuse me, the business people, versus the government? How do they see uh, the rivalry with the United States or the collaboration with the United States? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> I can give you some current. And how nationalist are they? Okay, I'll give you another concrete current example, okay? I can't give you the particulars because it's a lot matter, okay? But a private, a different private for profit healthcare company has come to us through two Chinese partners that we have 
and they want to literally merge with an American company that we've identified and bring that merged company to the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And they see that merged company as having a gigantic valuation on the Shanghai Stock Exchange and they would make quick gains as would the American company. And so there, uh, I would say that to answer your question, you know, they want an American company because they think that in this particular sector, America is ahead of anything in Europe and certainly any other place in the world. And they want to maximize their valuation on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Now, is this, is this a company that invests in healthcare enterprises or operates an operating company that delivers healthcare services? I can say this, the latter, okay? They deliver information to their clientele, which is a very large number of hospitals in China, okay? Uh, and they would deliver information maybe that some American companies would have and maybe some Chinese companies wouldn't have. But in this particular area, they want to expand because expected profitability, as I was saying, uh, in particular capital gains are very high. Um, and uh, their mindset is fully set on get me the best American company in this particular subsector of healthcare. Now, one more question about China before I, I we want to save up time to talk about the Middle East. Okay. With regard to China, prospects for the future. Uh, the last couple of years have seen a, you know, definite move in the negative direction in uh, American-Chinese cooperation. Do you see it continuing, that trend continuing or reversing itself? Well, I'm not sure, given that I have the same kind of orientation that the two of you and all of our colleagues would have, uh, kind of in favor of the understanding the consequences of the free flow among countries of investment, capital, and trade. Um, and just given what we see, you know, Chinese sales internationally today, uh, I would think that they would appreciate the value to them of freeing up trade, okay? And uh, not going into this kind of, uh, kind of mercantilist mode. Uh, where it's gonna go, my sense see, is that there is probably, and I don't know this, a lot of debate within the party circles at the top. Um, some of them now well-educated and interacting a lot with people in the West, okay? Uh, and they're probably for continuing reform. And um, I just don't know, you know, Xi Jinping has turned out to be a surprise to me. I would have thought that given all the years that he spent in Iowa, he wouldn't have the kind of orientation that we see, okay? Um, so I don't wanna make a prediction because I don't know, I don't know how long he's gonna last in office, okay? I know what we see in the media that he basically wants an indefinite term, not unlike Putin, okay? Uh, that's number one. Number two, I don't know his real orientation. 
I don't know whether he really understands the consequences of all these government controls. Um, so I think it's hard to answer your question. I do think this about growth. Uh, very often, we all read the Wall Street Journal, three of us. In the last three or four years, there are headlines about the declining rate of growth in GDP in China. And then when you read the text, the text doesn't square with the headline because time after time, growth ends up being six or six and a half percent on an annual basis, okay? And whatever, it declined by a tenth of a point. It isn't what it was during the era of Deng Xiaoping, okay? So I don't know, I don't know where it's going to go, Tsvi, and I think that it would be kind of a little wild for me to make a prediction. Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, that's. that's Shall we move to the Middle East? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, um, Lenny, you deal a lot with business people in both regions. Right. Um, how different are they? How, how much the same? Uh, I mean, aside from uh, aside from wanting to maximize profits, uh, are there some differences that you've seen, or how would you assess the pattern of? Uh... Um, look, uh, I would say I haven't thought about your question, but reflecting on it, I would say more the same than different, the more similar than not. Okay, um, I talked a few weeks ago with a man with whom I interact regularly in Bahrain, okay? And um, his family, like yours, Bob, uh, has a very big company. Let's call it in the metals business. I don't think we should identify him, okay? Um, and he was telling me in a not angry way, but kind of accurately about how the Trump tariffs on particular types of metal have really damaged their very large metals business, okay? And um, he needs, he lives in a small country, okay? And he operates, and he, basically it's a township, okay? From a global point of view. And he needs to trade, okay? And he doesn't, he, he's not furious with Trump, and he also understands how Trump transformed the region with the Abraham Accords, okay? But his business has been hurt very, very substantially, very seriously. He's for free trade, okay? And he wants to invest his ample capital in businesses that operate in this country and that country, so he believes in the free flow of capital and the free flow of goods and services. And he's, he is an Arab not a Chinese business. He's from, Arab. He's from Bahrain, one of the largest companies in that tiny little country. Uh, and uh, I don't know, you know, when I, I have a good friend in Beijing who's a venture capital guy. Now, of course, uh, he his family is Ch Chinese. He grew up in uh, Tianjin for a little while, then they moved to Vancouver. And then he did his undergraduate education at um, Oxford. Okay, he speaks English pretty much like the three of us do. Very bright. Uh, but when you talk to him, and he's in a venture capital firm now, I mean, how different he sounds from a venture capital guy in uh, the Bay Area. I, I, you know, doesn't talk at all differently. 
So I don't have a large sample of people in those two regions, but some. And my basic view is that they're more alike than not alike. So your view is that, uh, your, your view is that actually uh, the ideas of trade, of the free flow of investment, um, the people who engage in those activities understand each other, want a broad global understanding, um, perhaps in a more uh, elaborate way than people who feel that they're pursuing peace and international relations. I'm not catching your question because you wanted to- Well, that, 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 that the business people have a much larger stake in uh, good relationships that would allow them to trade and invest uh, and are less concerned about, let's say, national, um, especially aggressive nationalism that would put their country ahead of another country. No question. I think your question makes the point, okay? Uh, these people run private businesses. Their capital is at stake. Their livelihood is at stake. They employ large numbers of people and their thoughts and their behaviors are indistinguishable from those. And I think that, uh, you know, with the people, among the people that I deal with in the Middle East and China, uh, they're more like Milton Friedman than Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um, they don't believe in all these controls, you know, what do the labor unions think and what about environmental policy and so on and so forth, not to dismiss any of those things. Okay. Uh, but they're not protectionists. Okay. They do understand that policies get modified and they need to adjust. I'll give you an example. The pandemic has made them in the Gulf think that they need to grow more of their food domestically and import less of it, okay? Um, and the government is, the governments are changing policy accordingly and they'll adapt to that. Uh, but uh, basically when you talk to a businessman in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, China, South Korea, Taiwan, you're talking to the same person. Whatever. And is that how, is that why, let's say, you, Leonard Hausman, who uh, sort of has some very positive views of Israel, uh, were able to uh, interact with people, or did it come out of uh, the Middle East centers that you built at Brandeis and Harvard, which will come to? Um, so well, let's set the stage. I mean, we haven't really talked about yeah. the Israeli Arab Palestinian problem in the Middle East, which is not a factor in China at all. Uh, so, from your perspective, how is that conflict? See, obviously, some of these businessmen, if not all of them, are willing to do business with Israel? It's more than that, Svee. Um, 
I learned by accident, okay? Starting in 1993, 94, uh, that the Arab businessmen in the Gulf and in Egypt wanted at that time, 26, 27 years ago, to have their countries move forward economically and not be mired in the conventional, even at that point, political disputes in the region. Okay? Um, a late uh, deputy dean at the Harvard Business School, Walter Salmon, uh, had the idea of following the first Middle East comprehensively regional economic and business conference in Morocco, I think it was 94, said, let's do the next version of that in Cambridge, Mass. Okay. And we learned right there, right then, I remember on the balcony and in the lunchroom, et cetera, at the Harvard Business School, there were Arab business people chomping at the bit right then and there, allow me to repeat myself, to begin to interact with Israeli companies and bring Israeli know-how to the Gulf, uh, invest in each other's businesses, trade, and so on and so forth. Okay. Now, various political actors got in the way of these business people. Um, and I think that the uh, major accomplishment of the Trump administration in the region was to enable these, to liberate those Arab business people uh, so that they could work right now as they are every day and as we speak with Israeli companies um, and to move on uh, from the uh, long-standing political uh, disputes. So uh, I kind of learned it as I went along. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was going on. Did I answer? Bob, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask uh, in your early, uh, perhaps you can describe how you built uh, the Middle East Center, because from there, I wanted to uh, note your ability to even attract um, donors to help try to move that um, political process forward. Yes. Uh, so the original idea came from a retired general in the Israeli military, Baruch Levy, okay, who's still with us. And he came to me kind of out of despair to be accurate. No one else would work with him that he had contacted, okay? This is when you were a professor at Brandeis. I was, uh, right, I was at- University. I was a professor at Brandeis in the Heller School, teaching occasionally in the economics department. And at that time, we started to work with his idea of elaborating on what President Carter and Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat had accomplished at Camp David and bring Egypt and Israel closer together. I quickly learned that that was politically impossible. And I shifted, and this is where the idea came from him, but kind of the refinement and came from me, okay? I had not thought about getting into that kind of work uh, at all, really at all, okay? And uh, I decided to try to focus on Israeli, Jordanian, Palestinian work and, um, Three people came to me with how to do that. It wasn't my idea how to do it. 
And they were Professor Eitan Shashinsky at the Hebrew University and the late Nobel uh, laureate, uh, Tom Schelling and Dwight Perkins, uh, also of the Harvard Economics Department and the Kennedy School. And we began to develop uh, economics working groups around subjects like cooperation in water, which was brought forward in a very, very advanced way by Frank Fisher of MIT uh, and trade uh, and so on. And then we published a book on that. Uh, the overall work was led by uh, Stanley Fisher um, of, them, of MIT, okay? And uh, that was our focus. Tom Schelling was involved in that too? I didn't realize. Pardon me? I didn't realize that Schelling was involved in that. Oh yeah, there was a committee of 10 economists, six from Harvard and four from MIT, who ran all the programs. And I began to create enemies for two reasons. One was that we excluded, and I don't mind saying this publicly today, people knew it. We excluded all uh, so-called Middle East experts from the two universities, Tzvi, because I, I got to realize that they have more bias than they have knowledge. Okay, and I made sure that every economist that we brought into the picture um, had no background in the Middle East, just they knew economics. Okay, Stanley, Lester Thoreau, and Dwight, and Tom Schelling, and so on and so forth, and several. And then there were people in those economics departments that felt, felt excluded. I hadn't excluded them, but how many could I include? Okay, uh, so that was a little bit of a thing raising some tension. Now, Bob, then to kind of answer your question, uh, my main Palestinian financial backer, who was close to Arafat, along with three other kind of global Palestinian businessmen, uh, born in Haifa, uh, living at the time in London, having raised Rafiq Hariri in business, okay, invited me, he was living in London as a Palestinian UK person, he got us an invitation to come to the White House lawn for the Clinton, Arafat, Rabin with Paris signing of the agreement in uh, the Oslo agreement. Right, right. Um, and uh, uh, um, that's a, that's another story you almost got me on to. And sitting there, I got the idea. Okay, you know now. Um, Progress has been made on this Israeli-Palestinian, also Jordanian front, okay? It was time to go to the Gulf, okay? And um, that's exactly what I said to myself, sitting there on the wall, go to the Gulf, okay? And then I learned, Svi, um, that there were these Gulf tycoons sitting around waiting to get going. And I can put it bluntly with the two of you, and I don't mind people hearing it, okay? They wanted to relate to Jewish business people in the US and in Europe and in Israel, okay? And they wanted no impediments anymore, okay? Everything that MBS has done with Trump and MBZ in the UAE is extremely welcome and to be praised, but it follows what began in the Gulf, or at least when I began to see it, in the early 90s, okay? And then also to say something political, and I'm not a critic of anybody in particular, and I wanna say something about this. I think that the Prime Minister of Israel in 2002 missed a huge opportunity 
because then the king of Saudi Arabia, the late king Abdullah, wanted to do exactly, again, in 2002, what the current crown prince of Saudi Arabia is doing. He wanted to get to work with Israel in business, okay? And the prime minister at that time blew it off and missed a gigantic opportunity. We could have been well along all these 18 years or whatever, 16, 18 years, uh, but he blew it. And I told my number one Israeli friend, uh, Baruch Levy at the time, oh my God, he wasn't kidding, you know, the king of Saudi Arabia. And you don't get these kind of things coming at you every day, okay? So um, there were a lot of missed opportunities. And, you know, just on the way to uh, here, I'm going to say something about myself. Uh, and But more importantly, not about myself. Svi, uh, what I learned in my early years was not only of doing that work, was not only about the true underlying attitudes of business people, Palestinian, Jordanian, Gulf, uh, that, well, that's what I've been talking about. I learned about the fact that the Israeli prime ministers, and I'm gonna name them, okay? Shamir, in consecutive order, okay? Uh, Shamir, Rabin, Paris, Netanyahu, Omert, on policy, political policy, and then economic policy between the Israeli government and their particular political entities were indistinguishable. Uh, no one has ever written this down, but the Israeli prime minister who inaugurated the relationship between the Israeli government and the PLO was Yitzhak Shamir. Most people would say he was the most right-wing prime minister in Israel's history. But I know with certainty that he was the one who started that relationship, okay? So a lot of the things that we see in the newspapers are so far off the mark, okay? People have no idea what's really going on. That's right. Right, and you know, Tzvi, when Shamir had his chief economist ask me to start the relationship between the Israeli government and the PLO, I couldn't believe my ears because I'm a human being too, okay? <laughs> I'm sitting in the prime minister's office, three doors down from the prime minister, who everybody is telling me is the most right-wing prime minister in Israel's history. He comes from this group and that group in Israel. And, and, and he says the PLO, okay? So I couldn't believe it. I mean, I knew at some level it was the truth. I had an Israeli colleague with me. I was going back to Boston the next day. And I said to her on the drive home, back to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem, I said, look, wait a week, okay? I'll be long gone. Asked to have the same meeting again, because it was in English. Maybe the guy made some mistakes speaking English. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she had the meeting and a week later, she called me up and said, Lenny, everything he said, he repeated, okay? And then we did it. And then that businessman from London was invited because Shamir's suggestion was start with Palestinian business people, okay? And what we did was get big people like Charles Brompton's person and other big people, uh, the guy who owned Awesome Foods, okay? We all know about that. Uh, we got them together and that's what started the relationship and that led to the relationship between the PLO and Israel, okay? So I hope I didn't wander too much, Bob. Well, um... Yeah, so it's quite striking that uh, Shamir 
himself recognized that the business people would be more open than some of the political people. Uh, however, uh, the political people can still make trouble. And well, uh, maybe that's do. why we're still in this, uh, in this situation. Well, that, was th that was then, and now it seems that uh, there's another breakthrough. Yeah, what yeah. do you see going forward? And how the Palestinians with the Gulf states? Yes, well, Svi, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but I think that there's a transformation underway among important Palestinian thinkers, not in the immediate uh, internal circle of the leadership in Ramallah about how they have to get with the program because of what's going on between Israel and the Gulf. That's a very big thing that's cooking. It's hard to know where it's going to go. But Bob, what did you ask? No, no, I, I, I'm go, go ahead. You, you, you continue with that. Your perspective on that going forward. That's what I wanted. Yeah, going forward, look, I'll give you one other example, then I'll ask, answer your question. Around 1996, 97, 98, we held a seminar privately among our Arab and Israeli and American board people in London. Okay, on the future of Jerusalem. Uh, who designated the main participants to run that seminar in our group? One was Arafat and the other was Netanyahu. Okay. And I chaired the discussion. It was basically about Jerusalem as a physically undivided capital of two states. Okay, Israel and a Palestine to be. And Netanyahu designated a deputy minister to be his representative. He knew the topic, he knew the audience, he knew everything. He was fully informed and he participated in it by extension, one of his people. Okay, Arafat the same way. Okay, so my view. Well, what do you think happened? I mean, all these people, people why? Why were the business people unable to persuade their political colleagues? I think that the biggest mystery of all, Bob, which no one seems to address with all that's written, is why did Arafat refuse the offer in December 2000, coming from Bill Clinton, December 2000, January 2001, representing Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister at that time, with 45 billion US dollars in aid flowing to a new state of Palestine over a five year period. Why did Arafat reject that offer? Incidentally, the public presentation of that offer was totally misrepresented. I wanna say this publicly and clearly by Robert Malley, M-A-L-L-E-Y in an op-ed in the New York Times. And I know that he was uh, misrepresenting what happened among Clinton and Barack and Arafat, because I was told by a member of the immediate closest advisory group to Arafat that what came out publicly was not the case. Arafat turned down the proposal. He did it unilaterally. He went from the White House to the airport, in this man's view, to avoid going back to his delegation who wanted to accept the Clinton Barack offer, okay? And with all of the academics and with all of the journalists that we have in the world, 
no one has ever written an article about why Arafat said no. Okay, and then subsequently why other Palestinian leaders. Abbas, who at that time seemed to be annoyed with Arafat for saying no. But when he became prime minister or president, whatever, president was his title, he did the same thing. So I think now, so the answer to your question is that the Palestinian businessmen somehow couldn't overcome the political, I, I don't know the story there. I've, I've never, you know, they couldn't overcome uh, Arafat's opposition. Arafat in 1996 uh, reignited or had the first intifada. Why did he do that? Okay. He had the agreement that uh, Clinton had signed with him and Rabin. Okay. Things were going forward. They were on their way to statehood. Okay. And then all of a sudden he had to start blowing up Israeli buses. Why? And why does the world, why did the world and why doesn't the world ever investigate why that went on? And why today are the Palestinian business people who are not interviewed, basically, so frustrated with the Palestinian political leadership? Okay? Why is that? And what goes on? Is it that Iran controls Hamas? I'm not sophisticated on those matters. It's all guesswork because no one really looks into it. Sorry. Well, let's let's turn. Uh, these are very interesting topics, but um, this uh, uh, series is called We've Ideas of to go. What? We've got ten minutes to go. Okay. Yeah, this series is about ideas and lives. Right. And we want to take you through uh, your career from. Uh, right. Well, I would say your uh, life. What, what's the? This is your life. I'm in North Carolina. Yeah. Right. Okay, I have to try to cover that. You know, Bob, once you and Svee sent me the emails, I began to think about it. The accurate answer is one accident or unanticipated event after another. Okay. Um, and I didn't end up being a conventional academic, as the two of you have said here today. Okay. Um, I would say that there are three parts to one's work possibly uh, as an academic, teaching, research, and maybe program development on the part of a few of us. I would say that what I really like to do or what I really spent my time on was number one and number three, not research, okay? Um, so uh, I got into uh, civil rights work in the spring of 1963 uh, because an education department professor at Queens College who I only knew casually, because I never took a course in education per se, uh, asked me to head up a project uh, to provide in Prince Edward County, Virginia, the first school for the black kids, which had been closed on them in 1959, okay? And with all the organizations that existed in America, teachers unions, uh, this organization, that organization, NAACP, no one opened a school for the black kids for whom there was no education for four years, okay? Mm. And a bunch of 21-year-old kids from Queens College did it at the suggestion of two education department professors, okay? Were and, they white or black, the education department professors? Uh, one was white and the other was black, okay? And both just had their heads screwed on right, and they were saying to themselves, 
how do we get these kids back into school? Okay. Uh, and uh, with D Dick Gregory, uh, we raised the money and financed the program and took no compensation and did it. Uh, that led to further civil rights work, also accidental, uh, on my part when I was teaching in NC State. Um, and here's where the world is so off. Um, I was considered a left-wing person in the economics department at NC State. I was involved in civil rights activities, supported almost unanimously by people who, who, who got their PhDs in Milton Friedman and George Stigler's economics department at the University of Chicago, okay? Because they were serious about supporting free speech, even when it was civil rights speech, okay? Uh, without bothering you with the detail, that got me to Brandeis somehow. It's a long, not too long a story, but we don't need to dwell on it here. And then um, I just got into teaching and government funding. And then, Svi, uh, you might be interested in this. Um, in 1980, when uh, Ronald Reagan was elected, I realized, oh my God, I had done all my work with government funding, like so many of us had done, right? Um, and I said to myself, you better figure out how to raise private money. You have all these people hanging around, working for you, with you, and so on and so forth. And that's when I started getting into raising money privately. And then one person came to me on the Middle East, and then in my tennis club locker room, Someone came to me on China, okay? And then I started working on raising money privately, this way, that way, and so on. And that led to the network that I developed. That's the basis for all of my business work today, okay? Um, and then uh, in, uh, let's see, April 1st, 1988, the then president of Brandeis, the late Evelyn Handler, decided that our Middle East program shouldn't be at Brandeis. And what was the great reason that she didn't think it should be at Brandeis and shouldn't take money from the Catholic Church, $1 million, okay? At that time, a lot of money. She said I hadn't listened to her on something, okay? So she closed the program at Brandeis with the unanimous support of the Board of Trustees at Brandeis. And two weeks later, two very, very prominent people in retail food, uh, the late um, Leo Kahn and the late Irving Rabb. Uh, this came to me and said, completely by surprise, I hadn't thought about it. Lenny, do you wanna to go to Harvard? Okay, and take the Middle East program to Harvard. And then we did that and we took the China program to MIT. Okay, uh, and then people had different ideas. The whole MIT thing was all of Lester Thoreau's idea. Okay, uh, Svi, both of you have had your MIT connections. Lester, when he was dean of the Sloan School, uh, really was very interested in globalizing the school uh, in terms of uh, things that they worked on with students, research, and so on and so forth. And he felt that there was a, a need to develop an East Asia program. And he asked me to come and do that there. And with him, it was a piece of cake to do that. Uh, and we did that. So Bob, um, go ahead, keep going. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, you became a roving ambassador for MIT in those years. Yes, that's correct. Uh, but I really, again, to be accurate, it was Lester's idea. And I hired a man from China with whom I still work today. And we raised all of the money uh, in Singapore and Taiwan 
and then the academic relationships with the five top business schools in China, okay? And I can tell you, because uh, this is the way it was, how do we raise $10 million from Singapore for a program at MIT? Um, Lester said, you know, raise a lot of money. So I had been working on my Middle East program with Alexander Haig, former Secretary of State. And I called up his right-hand guy, a wonderful man, still with us, Woody Goldberg. I said, doesn't Secretary Haig have a good relationship with uh, so on and so with so on, uh, this person and that person in Singapore? He said, yes. I said, well, let's think a little bit about how we can raise money. And Woody called me back a few days later. He said, Lenny, uh, if you arrange a one-hour meeting for this man, uh, Chinbak Chan, I think was his name, with Lester Thoreau in Lester's office at the Sloan School, and that meeting goes well, the Sloan School is going to get a check of 10, a wire transfer of $10 million. I said, Woody, really? <laughs> For that, you should get a lot more. Right. I ambled up to Lester's office. And I said, Lester, you want $10 million? <laughs> he said, no. Okay. <laughs> so did this come to pass? Did it it came to pass within a matter of weeks. Wow. Lester had the meeting, the meeting went well. Lester was great in such meetings. $10 million arrived and a whole program was developed between Singapore and the Sloan School. And then I knew a woman here in Newton and she had a friend in, uh, also in Newton who had a big connection in Taipei. And we basically did the same thing, but a little bit, uh, basically the same thing, a little bit different with Taiwan. And out of that, Lester's idea, this woman's connection, a little bit of management, uh, MIT got over $150 million over the years. Wow. Not over, bad. Yeah. Right. And that, that basically got MIT, not the Sloan School. Lester was different in another way. First of all, it was his idea, only his idea. Okay. His idea only. Um, when he got the money, he said, I'm not going to take it only for the Sloan School. Let's build MIT. Okay, and listen to the people in particular from Taiwan and what they really wanted to do and which departments at MIT most suited them as partners. And he spread that money all around. Okay, and that built up MIT in East Asia. Wow. Yeah. Then someone else wrote a book at MIT about how he did it. <laughs> the book is totally fanciful. It was published. Is that right? Oh, totally. Complete fans. I mean, just complete nonsense. It is the PR no department at MIT. It, it was what? The PR department at MIT. Oh, I don't need to name the man. He's uh, he's just in the Sloan School, okay? And he didn't like the idea that Lester and I and my colleague from China did it. So he went to a publisher with a whole lot of photographs and got a huge book, you know, like a table top book in art, uh, which said basically, I did this, not, not me, not Lester, but this- Oh, he took credit himself. A hundred percent, he took credit, okay. 
but it was 100% Lester's thought. And then he it wasn't Donald Trump, was it? <laughs> the guy would say his politics are different, but the same kind of narcissism. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I, remember, I remember being at an event at MIT where the book was rolled out and everybody was given a copy of the book, a very expensive book. I mean, it was totally inaccurate. What did Lester think about all that? Lester, I think that by, the, uh, by the time the book was published, Lester had, uh, was deceased. Okay. Mm. So it was very- Oh, strange. so this is fairly recent then. No, quite recent. Uh, well, but it was after Lester's death. And, um, you know, I just sit there, I sat there uh, with relatives of Lester in total disbelief and no one at MIT in any way raised the question about the accuracy wow. of the Maybe they didn't know. Well, we're glad you're I, I we're glad you're able to correct the record for our listeners. <laughs> Maybe well, you're going to straighten this out for everyone. Well, we'll straighten. We'll straighten it out. I have no problem with that. He deserves the credit. Okay. Well, there, Lenny. There are so many more things that we could talk about. Uh, you're a great conversationalist. Uh, wonderful examples of how things have happened over the years, right. and I think we'll have to do it again. Because our no listeners will probably be eager uh, to find out uh, the next chapter in what's going on with Leonard Hausman Enterprises. Right. And uh, <laughs> well, I thank the two of you for the attention that you've uh, bestowed upon me. And uh, I think that the most important thing to think about is that, uh, you know, maybe things don't happen the way they're portrayed, uh, they're portrayed to suit people's ways of thinking as opposed to the ways that things really unfold. And I think it probably is healthy for us all to think about how our thinking is inaccurate. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Lenny. Uh, they say there's no such thing as a book of nonfiction. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good one, sweetie. Yep. That's a very good one. Thank you. Thank you both. All right. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.